Well, the the last few weeks have been uh, pretty unusual, right? I've had several people contact me and and ask me if the coronavirus is in in some way uh, a judgment of God. That's a good question, right? And the the Bible doesn't tell us definitively whether or not we can look at a particular virus, at a, at a plague or any other type of disaster and definitively say this is God's judgment upon us or upon our nation for any one thing in particular or if it's God's judgment at all. But I will say this, that the last few weeks... Uh, all of humanity, our entire world, has been given a theology lesson. Uh, our, our human race has been reminded that we live in a fallen world, that we live in a world tainted by sin, that, that a world that is under the curse. But that is not our... Our biggest problem, living in a world that is cursed by sin and and tainted and longing for redemption, as Romans 8 says, that is not our biggest problem as human beings, just living in in a world under the curse. Our biggest problem is not outside of us, but it is inside of us. We live with a sinful heart. A heart that, that loves to do our own thing, to have it our way, to rebel against the God who has created us and given us life and breath and everything. And, and just before God brought about the, the judgment of a global flood in Genesis, we see this, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we see that after the flood, nothing really had changed. In Jeremiah 17:9, the prophet writes, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And our hearts that are tainted and stained by sin, stained to our absolute core, lead us to sin and our sins then separate us from God. Isaiah 59.2 says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So we are uh, experiencing this theology lesson that we live in a sin-cursed world. And what we see in this experience right now with the coronavirus is, is demonstrating the truthfulness of the Bible. Uh, and, and the coronavirus is, is bringing out the very worst in people. We've seen selfishness on display in a variety of ways. We've seen people stockpiling supplies beyond what they really need. We've seen uh, college students congregating together to go party at the beach during spring break. We've seen uh, the, the warnings of, of medical authorities and political leaders being disregarded just as well, we don't care about loving our neighbor, but only we want to do what we want to do. But at the same time as the, the virus is 
revealing the, the worst in people. Some of you might argue that the virus is also showing uh, the good in people. Uh, and, and to say that we are tainted by sin is not to say that we have no capacity for good. And we're seeing uh, the good brought out and demonstrated in uh, our our medical workers, so those who are working in hospitals and, and clinics around uh, the country and around the world are, are showing a bravery as they are on the, the front lines of battling this coronavirus. Uh, and they are doing so selflessly and sacrificially. And indeed, we are thankful for their service, and they are demonstrating a love for a neighbor in that capacity. But something to keep in mind is even our best deeds, even our, our service on the behalf of others, it does nothing to commend us to God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And again, that verse says that even even the very best things that we do, if we bring them to God and say, hey, God, look at what I've done, they're polluted rags. Uh, they are, they're dirty and horrible. And we would, we would never want to bring those before God and say, look at what I've accomplished for you. Our good deeds do nothing to remove the guilt of our sins. Even as we've been reading in Jeremiah uh, this month, Jeremiah 2.22 says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. And we have to keep that in mind, that our sinfulness doesn't, doesn't come off uh, in the shower. It Does, doesn't come off if, if we scrub really hard. We are, we are sinners and, and we love sin. And sin is the greatest evil that we, that we battle against in this life. It's not coronavirus. It's not living in a fallen world. It's, uh, this is the, the greatest battle that we face, whether we are in quarantine or out of quarantine. And each and every day of our lives, our greatest enemy, our greatest evil that we face is our own sin. And it was into this sin-stained world that Jesus came. Right? We celebrated that at Christmas. Uh, Jesus coming, being born of a virgin, coming into the world. And in Matthew chapter 1, as the angel was speaking to Joseph, who was to be Jesus' stepfather, he says this, speaking of Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for because he will save his people from their sins. That is why Jesus came, to save his people from our sins, not from the coronavirus, not from uh, being unhappy in this life. But Jesus accomplished our salvation by living a perfect life, by submitting himself to the injustice of the cross, even as we just read this evening. He submitted himself to be arrested and then unjustly tried and condemned. And he submitted to the scourging, the beating, the mocking, and finally to death on the cross. As we read, he yielded up his spirit. And in submitting to all of those human attacks, Jesus was ultimately submitting to the will of God the Father who sent his son to die on the cross 
to pay the penalty for our sins. And tonight we turn our attention to the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago to see how the glory of the cross overcomes the evil and the ugliness of sin. Right, we have to see and understand how, how ugly the sin is that resides inside of our hearts. And once we see and understand that, then the beauty and the glory of the cross is magnified. And that's what I would like to, to look at and examine this evening, to see how the work of Jesus on the cross accomplishes our salvation. And it is important for us to take the time to look at the cross, not just tonight, but each and every day. Author and theologian Tony Ranke says that the the human heart bends toward what the eye sees. So if we're constantly setting sin before our eyes, if we're constantly gazing upon it and beholding worthless things in this life, we are going to we're going to have our hearts inclined to those things. So it is good that this evening and each and every Sunday we would come together and set our eyes upon Jesus, upon His cross and what He has done for us so that our hearts might incline, they might bend in His direction. But just how exactly do we do that, right? I mean, Jesus died, again, 2,000 years ago almost. So how do we look at something that happened 2,000 years ago? How do we gaze upon the crucifixion of Jesus? And we do that by looking at God's Word, by hearing God's Word proclaimed with our ears and with receptive hearts. And my hope this evening would be to, to talk through five thoughts that I'd like to set before you tonight that would help put Christ on display of what He accomplished on the cross. Five reasons the cross is indeed wonderful. Five reasons that we can look at the cross and and respond with, with praise and joy and thanksgiving and worship for all that God has done through His Son. As we look at these these reasons the cross is wonderful, I would begin with this, and this is going to be a, a topical message. I'm going to be jumping and landing in different places in Scripture. So if you if you have your Bible, you can turn to these places, but I'm just going to, to read off some of these verses. And the first reason that the cross is wonderful, I would say that, that at the cross, our guilt is removed. At the cross, the guilt of our sin was taken from us, and it was placed upon Jesus, while he was on the cross, being crucified in agony. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Speaking of that exchange, that Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. John one twenty nine. John the Baptist said this, uh, that he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, and and all, all this idea of on the cross Jesus taking away our guilt and our guilt being removed from us, it is, it is pictured for us uh, in the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. 
Now, so if you read in Leviticus, which is everyone's favorite book to dive into, if you read uh, carefully in there, when you sinned, you didn't just grab a a lamb, you didn't grab a a sheep and and bring him to the temple and take it to the priest and say, okay, kill my animal and and make everything right for me. Now, if you read in Leviticus chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, it would say this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And this was the, the normal practice. If you were bringing a sacrifice, you would bring the animal, you would lay your hands on the, that animal, being symbolic that, that you were placing your guilt, your sin upon this animal. And then you would be the one to kill the animal. And, and that guilt would be removed from you. This is also pictured in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where the high priest once a year would come and place uh, his hands upon uh, one of two goats that they would be using in this uh, special holy day. And he would confess all of the sins of Israel upon that goat. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness, showing visually that, hey, all of the sins of the people are now on this goat and he is carrying away the sins of the people. And that is what Jesus has done for all those who look to him in faith, that he takes away our guilt. It is removed from us. And this doesn't need to be done year in and year out like it needed to be done on the Day of Atonement. Christ's sacrifice, his carrying away of our sin, the removal of our guilt is a once and for all finished work by Jesus. It doesn't need to be repeated. Colossians 2.14 says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is how we have been made alive. This is how we have been saved. The debt of our sin, all that we owed to God, all of that guilt that needed to be addressed, what was nailed to the cross of Jesus. And Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That, that is how he wraps up his, his letter. And do you notice what he said about us? It says that we are now blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, our guilt is, is gone, and we are now blameless before a holy God in heaven. And if that was Jude's closing benediction, may that also be the praise on our lips and in our hearts even this evening, because our guilt has been removed for us at the cross, and we are now blameless before God. Secondly, I would say this, the reason that the cross is wonderful is that at the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. And so while while our guilt remained on us, so did God's wrath. 
that a just and a holy God is obligated to judge sin rightly. But because our guilt has been removed, why it, it, there was darkness over the land for th- the last three hours that Jesus was on the cross from, from noon to 3 p.m. And this idea of the satisfaction of God's wrath uh, is, is explained in the Bible in a simple uh, and single word, but with a big meaning. Uh, the, the word is propitiation. You're like, wait, that's not simple. Uh, but, it, but it is. It's the idea of satisfying wrath, of satisfying anger. And the, the word is used in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, uh, speaking of, of all who believe in Jesus, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. And Hebrews 2.17 uses that, that simple and significant word again, propitiation. Therefore, He, speaking of Jesus, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So Jesus had to become like us so that he could make uh, a propitiation on our behalf. And, and in doing that, he satisfied the wrath of God. During the, the Civil War, uh, General Ulysses S. Grant, who would eventually come on to become uh, president, he was given a nickname, Unconditional Surrender Grant. And he was given that nickname because when he negotiated peace with a Confederate general uh, after the, the Battle of Fort Donelson, uh, there, there, was, there was only one thing that, that he would agree to peace on. He says there was only one thing that would satisfy the wrath of Grant and his army. Uh, and he wrote to, to General Buckner, the Confederate general, when, when General Buckner asked him for terms of surrender, This is what General Grant said. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. Uh, And and God has similar terms. God's wrath will not be satisfied except by two ways. The, The first would be that we would endure His wrath for our sins. And we would experience that wrath for eternity after we die, after we go into eternity, we would be judged. That is one way for God's wrath to be satisfied and poured out for our many sins against Him. The only other way for God's wrath to be satisfied is by looking to Jesus and looking to Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross for our salvation. Again, our guilt, our sin is placed upon Jesus and the wrath of God that Jesus endured is attributed to our account so that God is no longer angry with us. He's no longer wrathful towards us, but his wrath has been satisfied. And again, if if you have placed your faith in Christ, what a what a beautiful thing to know that there is no more enmity. There, there's no more tiptoeing around being fearful and afraid of God. His wrath is no longer hovering over you. But God's wrath has been completely satisfied in Christ. And the satisfaction of God's wrath then leads to our third reason that the cross is wonderful. That at the cross, God and man are reconciled. 
God and man are reconciled. And, and since our guilt has been removed and the wrath of God has been satisfied, uh, we are no longer at war. We are at peace with God. There's no longer any hostility, but there is uh, benevolence and kindness and, and peace. And I love what, what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And when we look in faith, we experience that. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him again we have a reconciliation we are blameless and holy in the sight of god because of what jesus did for us on the cross and as you all can can probably attest uh you have all experienced conflict you have all experienced enmity between you and someone else whether that's been in your own home whether that's been in your workplace whether that's been with a with a neighbor you know how conflict it, it just it's like a black hole uh, it, it it absorbs everything in your life and it gets sucked in uh and you feel like you can't focus on anything else and uh, and conflict has uh that that feeling of dread and uneasiness and, and f- of anger and hostility and, and bitterness uh and and that indeed though all of those feelings that that enmity and hostility that that is what characterized our relationship with God before we trust Christ, before we look to what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross. All of those things are true. But if we look to Jesus in faith, if we acknowledge our sin and our sinfulness, that we are sinners in need of his grace and desperately looking to what Christ has done rather than ourselves, then we can have peace with God. There is no more pent-up hostility. There's only grace, mercy, and even adoption into God's family. That's the type of peace uh, that we experience. That's the reconciliation. It's not, okay, I'll just stop shooting. Uh, It's not a ceasefire. It is full peace where God brings us uh, from being sinners estranged from him to being adopted children in his family. And because of the cross, we are now at peace with God who has created us and the God to whom we owe worship and praise and thanksgiving and honor. All of these tie together, right? Our our guilt has been removed. God's wrath has been satisfied. And as a result, we now have peace and we have been reconciled with God. Then fourthly, at the cross, sinners are redeemed from slavery. And those, those first three all have to do with our relationship with God the Father. But but this one here, the, the reason that the cross is wonderful, this fourth reason, this one deals with our relationship with sin. Before we look to Jesus in faith, we, we are said to be enslaved to sin. But this language of redemption in the Bible, uh, you could say that this language of redemption is fundamentally commercial. What do I mean by that? Well, redemption speaks of purchasing out of the market uh, by paying a ransom. 
That's the idea of redemption. So in, in, in Old Testament Israel, if an Israelite uh, became so poor that they couldn't pay their bills, there was no bankruptcy. Uh, you couldn't just say, okay, I'm bankrupt and now I'll just start over. It wasn't an option back then. And what you would have to do is you would literally sell yourself as a slave to the, to your, uh, the one that you owed money to, to your debtor. And think about that. Selling yourself into slavery. But the Old Testament also had a provision that if that Israelite had a relative who was willing to pay a ransom, then that relative could could redeem that person from slavery. They could rescue them out of slavery. And that is the idea of redemption, to purchase out of the slave market, to, to bring someone back uh, from enslavement to freedom. And Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10 45 and again if we have believed in jesus we have been purchased by his blood he has paid our debt to god the father all that debt for sin that we owed because of our guilt because of our rebellion all of that was paid by jesus on the cross and with a price so glorify god in your body that, that's the implication there Romans six seventeen and 18 say this, But thanks be to God, the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And if you just think with me, if you were one of those uh, Old Testament Israelites who, who had to sell themselves out of their poverty into slavery, how grateful would you be to that relative who, who redeemed you, who rescued you, who was willing to, to pay the price of your ransom? How thankful would you be? Therefore, may we be thankful to God and may we now live for him because of what he has done in paying our ransom. One additional thought to think about in all of this from First Peter verses eight, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says about our ransom, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That, that to, to purchase our redemption, Jesus didn't just open up his wallet. He opened up his veins. He, he bled for us that the blood of Christ was going to be the only payment that God would accept, the only thing that would satisfy God's wrath. That is how we were rescued and redeemed from our slavery to sin, by the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. And that blood removed our guilt, it satisfied God's wrath, it reconciled us to God and purchased our redemption. But that's not all. Lastly, at the cross, Satan, sin, and death are defeated. The cross marks the defeat of Satan and all of his demons. Uh, and it marks his defeat... Because, again, of our, our opponent in this life is, yes, it is sin, but 
but we battle against the, the ruler of this world who, who is Satan. That this world is in his hands. We see that repeatedly in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul speaks of our battle against him. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Colossians 2, in, in looking at all of those uh, demonic hierarchies and looking at Satan, Paul says that, that Christ defeated that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross, in him. When, when Jesus went to the cross, when our certificate of debt was nailed there with Jesus, all of our sins were paid for. And Satan, as the accuser, the one who accuses the brethren, remember when we read through the book of Job, Satan comes into the presence of God and he's saying, look at what Job is doing. Look at what he's not doing. God, you should test him. You should try him. You should do all of these things against Job. <coughs> Satan does the same thing with us. But now, because our guilt, our sin has been paid for by Jesus, there's nothing to accuse us of. Because when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. The accuser has lost the ability to accuse God's people. Again, that is how Satan has been disarmed. And now, there's another implication of this, that, that Jesus is, is now plundering Satan's domain. That he is now uh, moving and saving people from the domain of darkness and bringing them and making them citizens of his kingdom, the kingdom of God. We see that in Colossians 1. Uh, we see that elsewhere in Scripture, that this is how uh, Jesus is now demonstrating his victory. And so in, in the same way that a, that a conquering army, when they, when they defeat a, a nation in battle, they can go into that nation and do whatever they want with the citizens. Well, well because Jesus defeated Satan, he now goes into Satan's dominion and says, okay, I'm going to save some people here. I'm going to rescue them out of your power, uh, and I'm going to bring them into the kingdom of heaven and that's what we see jesus doing in the cross he defeats satan he defeats all of uh satan's minions and has victory over all of them but the cross of christ also demonstrates that jesus conquered sin and death and christ lived a perfect sinless life thereby conquering sin and, and the death that he died on our behalf, removed the sting of death for everyone who trusts in Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, may that be our cry may that be our praise tonight and and each and every day again as we as we look and contemplate the cross that we would praise god for removing the sting of death for conquering and defeating sin we're no longer under the curse of the law but christ rules and reigns victoriously because of what he did on the cross that is why the cross is so wonderful that at the cross our guilt is removed, God's wrath is satisfied, 
We are reconciled to God. We are redeemed from slavery to sin. And Christ is victorious over Satan's sin and death all at the cross. And and if you are watching this tonight and you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, then all of those things are true for you. But but if you are watching this and and, and reading and hearing the word proclaimed to you this evening and you haven't trusted in Christ completely, then none of those things are true. But, but uh, all of those uh, contrapositives still remain. If you haven't trusted in Christ, then your guilt still remains upon you. If you haven't trusted in Christ, God's wrath is not satisfied. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you you are still at war with God in rebellion against Him. If you haven't trusted Christ, you are still a slave to sin. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, then, then Satan's sin and death still have power over you. But I would plead with you tonight for anyone and everyone who was watching this, to look to Jesus in faith. Behold Him on the cross. And do not trust in anything else but what He has done. Don't trust in your own works. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Don't say, I can make it there. I'm I'm a good person. I've done enough. That's not true. That is not true. Even even if the world around us is saying it. God has spoken to us in his word and he has said, no, look to my son. Your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And so I would plead with you to reflect upon your spiritual state and and look to Jesus in faith. Trust in him and in him alone so that you may be rescued, reconciled and redeemed and you might then begin to understand this, this Friday when Jesus was unjustly killed, unjustly crucified, and He bore the wrath for our sins, and you begin to understand why we call it Good Friday. Not Sad Friday, not Depressing Friday, but Good Friday, because the cross is wonderful for all of these reasons. Again, as as we've been reading in Jeremiah this month, my attention was drawn to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Again, as I I quoted Tony Ranke earlier, that what, what the eyes see, the heart begins to be inclined towards. Uh, And the people of Judah in Jeremiah's day, their, their eyes were beholding and looking at going after Idols. That's the the worthlessness. And what did they end up becoming like? Because they went after worthlessness and they became worthless. They became like the things that they were beholding. They became like uh, what they were worshiping. And again, that is why this is so important. To look upon the cross of Christ. Not just on Good Friday... But each and every day, this isn't like like Christmas. I know some people tend to, to they look at, there's this big build up to Christmas, uh, right? You're listening to to Christmas music for like a month leading up to it. But then uh, as soon as Christmas happens, they're like, okay, get, take everything down, put it all away, uh, and let's be done with it. And then you're like, we can't think about Christmas again until next December. It's like, oh, that may that never be 
shouldn't be that way about looking at the incarnation of in Christ's birth and coming into this world, and it should never, ever be that way with the crucifixion of Christ. It should never be that we would put away the cross from our minds, but we must always look to it. We must always reflect upon it and see our sinfulness and all that Christ accomplished to rescue and redeem us, to reconcile us with God the Father through what he did on the cross. And and may that be upon our minds this evening and uh, in the next few days and again each and every day. May we reflect upon the cross and all that Jesus has done. And may we look to him in faith so that our hearts would bend toward him and not towards anything else.